0: I welcome all of you again this morning in the name of Christ. I do pray that you have delighted in his gospel grace throughout the week. In your lows, I trust he brought you up. In your highs, I pray that you magnified him. And I do pray that throughout this week, you have delighted in him, his word, and prayed... For his worship today and for his people. What a great and wonderful blessing it is to see you all here today. My beloved wife sends her greetings. She is still coughing from her recent sickness and uh, in much, much discomfort. But she is here in spirit and in my heart. So I do ask you to remember her and remember all of those who are sick, who are unable to be with us this morning. (coughs) If you have little ones and they're having one of those mornings uh, and it's a challenge to uh, quiet them, please feel free. It is the practice of our congregation, that if one of them needs to be quieted, we just get up and take them through that door uh, into the fellowship room. There's a large screen. And uh, you may continue to follow the service in there. And uh, should you find the blessing of quietness, uh, or at least peaceableness in some measure, please feel free to rejoin us. You will not disturb us that way. Uh, Our own folk do this just about a weekly basis. So we want you to feel comfortable in being able to do that. We also have a a nursing mother's room. And I pray if you need that, um, you can ask anybody in that fellowship room, I think. And they can guide you to the nursing mother's room. There's also a screen there. We all live with screens today, don't we? And uh, you can continue to follow the uh, service there, and there's even a volume knob should you need it. (coughs) Well, for the sake of our visitors, or for those who have not been here in a while, (coughs) uh, we have started uh, a series of. Uh, expositions through the letter to the Hebrews. That's what I was preaching in when I left my first congregation. So it's interesting to have Brother Paul here. It wasn't because of my preaching, Hebrews. That simply was the uh, providence God had for us. In fact, the name of it was Providence Baptist Church. and I'm filled with... uh, Great joy this morning and very fond memories of the dear saints that were there. Most of them have passed on to glory, at least those that were there when I was there. And I'm thankful they have, as I understand, a sound preacher there now. And that they are having some attendance. And I'm greatly blessed to hear it. (coughs) We have gone through the first Four verses, though we will refer to it from time to time, as we will today. But we're going to read beginning in verse four, and we're going to read through verse 14. As I've mentioned previously, uh, the first chapter is broken up. Usually, if you can go to the older commentaries, they actually make the second section, verse four through 14. But normally in our day and in many of the paragraph marks that we have in uh, our translations, uh, verses 1 through 4 are the first part, and then chapter 5 continues. The reason uh, that it has been broken up beginning in verse 4 is because, as I have mentioned here a couple of times, verse 4 is a hinge verse It is connected to those first verses, and we'll see that connection even more (laughs) clearly today. It is a gateway. It is a portal into the argument that is made here. So if you would be so good to stand with me one more time, we're going to hear the Word of God read. Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrews, beginning in verse 4. Let us give our attention to these precious words. Brethren, this is the word of our God. Being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For under which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world. He saith, and let all the angels of God worship him. And and of the angels, he saith, who maketh his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. But under the sun, he saith, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. And thou, Lord, in the beginning hath laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest. And they all shall wax old as doth a garment, and as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. But to which of the angels said he at any time, sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? Amen. May the Lord at his blessing to the reading of his word please remain standing for prayer. And as a reminder... I know I constantly need to remind myself when someone stands here uh, or before the congregation at any time or even stands in the congregation and leads in prayer, our hearts should be united with Him. <clears throat> that we might truly be a praying body. I don't know about you, but I constantly fight straying in my mind or distractions Um, and it's much easier when someone else is praying so let me encourage all of us we pray together let's uh, uh, let's lift our hearts together before our God my blessed Father in heaven We have gathered this day to bring glory, praise, honor, and thanksgiving unto thee, for thou art worthy. Oh, how the heavenly multitude says blessing and honor and glory and power, riches, wisdom, and strength. Oh, may our hearts... Chime in with them. May we praise Thee. May our hearts truly bless Thee. Oh, my God in heaven, we live in a day of distraction. We constantly have screens or noise or things all around us, images constantly flashing, images on magazines, images on our phones, images Uh, on our computers, images on billboards. We have things throughout the week that may be great blessings, and we can even be distracted by something good like that. Father, we may have our hearts broken. We may have heavy and sorrowful hearts. And when we're praying, it is easy to Run back over these things, the arrows stuck fast in our souls. And yet, O God, what is better for us than our hearts to be cleared out and lifted up to Thee? This is my heart's desire for Thy people today. I pray, O Christ that as thou dost rule in the hearts of every regenerate soul that thy mighty spirit would help us to hear thy word to hear thee to hear thy message i know o god that this vessel of flesh is weak but i do pray And I ask that it is the prayer of all thy dear pastors and elders that we could say with Paul, we are not as those who corrupt the word. Oh, my father, preserve me from corrupting thy holy word. Help me to speak with clarity of mind May thy word grip my own heart as it has in my studies and the worship that it has drawn from my own soul. Lord, may that be multiplied over and again to thy people here. May they rejoice in thy word. May they rejoice in the Father, in the Son, and in the Holy Spirit. O oh God, as we sing, our faith looks up to thee, dear Lamb of Calvary, Savior divine. We look to thee, O oh head of the church. We look to thee, O oh prophet, to continue thy profiting word to us today. O oh Christ, thou art truly the word, and may this in This inscripturated word make its effectual impression upon our souls. And as our priest, we know that thou has offered up the sacrifice for us. That sufficient, that glorious sacrifice that has cleansed us, purged us from all our sins. May all thy children rejoice in that today. But we know that Thou has finished that work. And now, O Christ, Thou dost intercede for us. Intercede, and I know Thou dost for each of Thy children, whatever, whatever is in our heart. May lay it aside, except for praise and hearing Thee. And I ask, O God, that as Thy Word, Thy living Word, Thy Spirit-breathed Word enters our souls, may we rejoice in our God. Intercede for us, Lord Jesus. Intercede for us. This very letter gives us chapters about that. And my blessed Lord, as our King, Rule in purity and in holiness. Rule in our hearts. May we not bow to the lies of this world. May we not bow to our flesh. May we not bow to the deceitfulness and the sensual and the fleshly seductions of this world. No, O God, tune our hearts not only to sing thy praise, but, Lord, may we hear thee and magnify thee in our hearts. Now, for those that are lost, and there are lost ones here, Lord, what a grievous and dark state that is, wouldst thou please show the great mercy that Thou hast showed to the regenerate. Raise them from the dead this very day. Raise them. Shine the light of Thy Word in their darkness and draw them sweetly to Christ. Bring them to true repentance, not a word that floats in their mind occasionally, if even that. Save them, Lord. Save them by thy mighty power. And I ask my blessed Lord that thou wouldst truly encourage and build up thy blood-bought sheep. Thy mighty love has done all necessary to save them. And now sanctify them. I ask it all that thou might be glorified and that thy people might be blessed. In the name of Jesus, amen. Please be seated. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. But what does the Bible mean by the phrase, Son of God? I think many of us, certainly every regenerate soul here, has some thought, some mental place stored for Son of God. But I wonder, beginning with myself, how often I think, how does the Bible use that phrase? What is it saying to us? Is that only a title for Jesus the Christ? How does the Bible use and what does it mean by son of God? The scriptures say that Adam was the son of God. I don't think we consider that very often. But the genealogy in Luke's gospel, chapter 3, verse 38, ends with this. Seth. Which was the son of Adam, which was the son of God. The nation of Israel was the son of God. In Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, 23, God told Moses to say to Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord, Israel is my son. Even my firstborn. And I say unto thee. Let my son. Go. When father. The father in heaven. Speaks of someone as his son. He is rightfully called. A son of God. So a nation. Can be God's son. God's Old Covenant people are sons of God. In Isaiah 45, 11, we hear God declare, Ask me of things to come concerning my sons. Yet we know that many of Israel's sons were not regenerate. They had unbelieving hearts constantly drawn to other gods. Solomon and the Davidic kings were sons of God. God promised David in 2 Samuel 7, 12-14, I will set up thy seed after thee, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build an house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. He's talking about Solomon. Therefore, each successive Davidic king was a son of God. He ruled under the king of heaven. Every king of Israel, every king of Judah, Sat ruling for God as one of his sons. Therefore, each successive David or Davidic king was a son of God. But some kings were good and some were evil. Even angels are called sons of God. Job chapter 1 verse 6 says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan was included. God's new people. God's new covenant people, they are new people, and they're new creatures, but God's new covenant people are sons of God. John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 12 says, But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. And Paul says in Romans 8, verse 14, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. And Christ's new covenant teaches that all God's sons in that covenant, that blessed new covenant, are regenerate. That doesn't mean that everyone in a church building is regenerate. But it does mean that everyone that is in that covenant knows God. Not simply knows about, but knows them. That comes only by the power of the Holy Spirit. So everyone in that covenant is rightfully called a son of God. Now we could go on. But I trust that this makes the point. This phrase is used throughout the scriptures. But very often. We do not think much about how it's used. And especially then how it's used toward the Lord Jesus. The infallible word. Tells us what sons of God means with those considerations these uses of son of God have slightly different meanings it should be obvious but they all point to the relationship between the father and those that he brings forth in some way he's responsible for their being It might be the creation of a nation. It might be the appointing of a king. It might be the regeneration of a sinner, etc. If Holy Scripture then reveals God as Father to all these in different senses, it follows. That all those who are in a relationship with God are his sons in different senses. So when the blessed word of God, the spirit breathed, the God breathed word says that Jesus is the son of God. We know what it says. But what does it mean? (coughs) We have learned that Hebrews uses the word son for Jesus in two different and important ways. First, in eternity before creation, he was God the Son, eternally begotten of the Father, the second person of the Holy Trinity. Second, in time After creation, the Holy Spirit worked miraculously in the womb of the Virgin Mary, and in that miracle, the eternal Son became the human man, Jesus. And as we have learned, the Bible teaches us that Jesus is the God-man, truly God, truly man in one Glorious person. As the incarnate son of God. Jesus redeemed us to God. By his precious blood. Out of every kindred. And tongue. And people. And nation. And he rose again the third day. In triumph over the grave. After he had by himself. Purged us from our sins, our foul, defiling sins. After he purged us from them, he ascended into the vast eternal regions of heaven and sat down in triumph at the right hand of the majesty on high Jesus the God man is the son revealed in Hebrews 1 verse 2 God hath in these last days spoken unto us by his son This points to Jesus Christ. In his incarnate state. Eternal son. And human son. In one person. Now let us then sum up. What we understand. About Christ the son. Sorry for those. Who have not been with us the last few weeks. This would likely make more sense. But I trust that it will still be clear enough. For you to follow this summary. Christ the Son. Has always been. The Son of God in eternity. And as Jesus entered this world. An angel declared him to be the Son of God. While in the virgin's womb. Later. God the Father declared Jesus, the God-man, to be his son at his baptism. The Father did the same on the mount of Jesus' transfiguration. Peter declared Jesus to be the son of the living God. And Paul declared Jesus to be the son of God by the resurrection from the dead. The son of God with power. And when Jesus ascended into heaven. And was enthroned in glory. The father declared him the son. Those other declarations of Christ as son took place in this world. That last declaration. Was in the eternal realms of glory. God announced to the apostles and to others. This is my son. But now he broadcasts to the whole universe. This is my son. Seated at my right hand. Ruling. In splendor. Power. Power. This is the son of God. This is the son. Who accomplished. The redemption of his people. The son. Who ascended. Into heaven. The son. Who had now. Inherited. The kingdom. He came as the king. He established the kingdom. Because. He was king. He was son. But now he inherited it as its king ruling from glory. The son who has begun his great reign. It's not over. More of that to come. That kingdom will be consummated in all its splendor, in all its spiritual beauty. And when he sat down and God the Father declared him Son, that was the more excellent name than the angels. Jesus, the God-man, the declared, the announced son. How beautiful the progress of his life is. So our message is entitled, God's Son is Better Than Angels, part one. And may our Heavenly Father, through the power and presence of His Holy Spirit, enlighten our hearts to His infallible revelation of Christ, the Son. May His truths find a permanent dwelling place in our souls. So we have one main heading today. Now, it is true. The string of passages that are set before us in verses 5 through 14 could be covered in one message. But we'd, we would be the poorer, in my opinion, if we accelerated like that and i trust that as we look at two of those passages we will understand the richness of what they say and why the holy spirit through the human author put them in this chapter in this place as i've said before it's always good When we're reading the the scriptures to say, where am I? Where am I? Where is this? When, why, how is God speaking? And why is this here? Those are good questions to ask of the word of God. So our, our first and only main point is quite simple. Jesus The greater son of David is better than the angels. Jesus, the greater son of David is better than the angels. Now, the sacred text says, being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance, we know what that is now, obtained a more excellent name than they, For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. <clears throat> and again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. In verse 5, chapter 1, the author builds on what he said In verse 4, Christ is superior to the angels. He's better. He's greater. Verses 5 through 14 all argue from the Old Testament scriptures, the prophets, that Christ is superior to the angels. Remember, the first verse tells us that in time past, God spake unto the fathers by the prophets. He then shows <clears throat> that Christ is the greater word of God, the greater prophet. There is a comparison from verse 2 about the Son and verse 1, there is a comparison, there is a contrast between the Old Testament revelation and the New Testament revelation and Christ is better now this presses us forward it is interesting that the Holy Spirit again through the human author argues in the following way he uses several of the same arguments from verses 1 through 4 what's the difference why is he repeating himself what's the point <clears throat> the difference is that now he is going to base those same arguments directly on the scriptures that the Jews said they believed he is going to give the biblical foundation for the greater revelation of Christ and For the greater revelation of the Son of God, Messiah the King, the Son. Those four arguments are, number one, the Son rules over everything. Number two, the Son created the universe. Number three, the Son has an unchanging eternal nature. We're not talking about two sons. We're merely talking about two aspects of the one Son of God. And number four, the Son is exalted over the angels as he sits at the right hand of God. Again, those differences are important because the author begins his portion of this letter with Scripture. He's made his statements. Now he backs them up. We might put the question this way. Why did the author of Hebrews. Begin this portion of his letter. This way. He did so because the believing Jews. And even some Gentiles. To whom he wrote. Were discouraged. Fearful. And abandoning the faith. Persecution was a dark, menacing threat on the horizon. So the author wanted an indisputable biblical fact lodged in their hearts. What is that great fact? Jesus, the Son, is the sovereign Lord of the universe. He has paid the penalty for the sins of his people. And now he rules from the throne of God. The words being made so much better than the angels imply that Jesus the Son has been raised to a higher state of dignity and exaltation. As we mentioned last time, time before last, when we were in Hebrews. <clears throat> when we say being made so much better, made does not speak of him being created. Some try to spread that false doctrine. <clears throat> no, the idea is being raised to a higher status, a higher dignity, to exaltation. And as we will see, worship As God. That is why Jesus said. After his resurrection. All power is given unto me. In heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore. And teach all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father. And of the Son. And of the Holy Ghost. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever. I have commanded You. The scope of that is astonishing. Jesus says, Because of who I am, I am telling you, my disciples, my apostles, go take the world for me. This is the true. One world government. Jesus reigns. He is the Son of God. Everything that takes place in this world is not only under His eye, He rules it. Everything. Christ had absolute power and authority to command the nations of the world. The nations of the world and those within them to repent of their sins. To believe on him as the crucified and resurrected one. To be baptized in his name and to worship him. That is not. Wokeness. That is not political correctness. Jesus is our King. He is Messiah. I know everyone here understands that Christ and Messiah. Mean the same thing. Messiah is the Old Testament word for anointed. The anointed. And Christ is simply the New Testament. So when we say Jesus the Christ. We're saying Jesus the promised Messiah. And the Jews had come to believe. Because of their own scriptures. Messiah will be king. So my. My brethren, brothers, and sisters, Jesus inherited the kingdom. He has sat down on the throne to rule it. And he will until the consummation of the kingdom. That is why Jesus is better than the angel. There's certainly fallen angels who want to rule, and sometimes, and great tragically, greatly and tragically, they rule some humans. They get their worship, whether behind an idol or whether they simply control their thinking. But none rules the world. Jesus does. Now, before we go any further, Are you troubled? Are you downcast? Some of you may be here today. Are you fearful? Fearful. A fear is a common human experience. Do your weaknesses, do your failures, do your sins dishearten you? They do me. Christ, the God-man, is the hope that is better than anything else or anyone else. Now, do we believe that? Do we believe that idea in the term, Son of God, absolute sovereign? The Holy Spirit guides the author of Hebrews to use the inspired words of the prophets to show them the glory, the beauty, the reality, and the superiority of Christ to the mighty angels that played such a huge part in Israel's history. So our next heading follows. This is our subheadings, and we have four. <clears throat> the first one is this. The author, the author of the Epistle to the Hebrews, had great knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures. Verses 5 through 14 contain a chain of scriptures that reveal the author's knowledge of God's word. He was clearly a man who was filled with the Holy Ghost and whose heart was steeped in Scripture. And by the Holy Spirit's guidance, he used that knowledge to exalt Christ throughout the entire letter. He sounds much like Apollos, who we find in the book of Acts. Luke describes him in Acts 18:24 as a certain Jew named Apollos born at Alexandria an eloquent man and mighty in scripture what a wonderful way to be remembered an eloquent man and mighty in scripture Eloquent means characterized by speaking with precision, elegance, force, and persuasion, especially as a result of study. That's interesting. Certainly fits the author of Hebrews. Likewise, we might describe this author much like Charles Spurgeon described John Bunyan. Some of you, no doubt, have heard this. Quote, he had studied our authorized version. Now, let me say, while we defend and use the authorized version, the author of Hebrews did not have a copy. He didn't have the AV. He didn't preach. From the KJV. But Bunyan had studied. Till his whole being. Was saturated. With scripture. His writings. Continually make us feel. And say. Why this man. Is a living Bible. Prick him anywhere and you will find that his blood is bibline the very essence of the bible flows from him he cannot speak without quoting a text for his soul is full of the word of god close quote amen What a marvelous, marvelous example that is for us. Obviously, the author of Hebrews had so studied the Old Testament scriptures in the light of Christ, very important. He had so studied the scriptures in the light of Christ that his mind and heart were steeped In Christ-centered understanding. A Christ-centered understanding of God's word. And the Holy Spirit filled and guided him. Because the very essence of the Old Testament scriptures. Flows from him in this letter. His soul was full of God's infallible word. Consider this. From commentator George Guthrie. Quote. I count roughly. 37 quotations. 40 allusions. That means an indirect. Reference to. Allusions. 19 cases. Where Old Testament materialized. uh, Material is summarized. And 13, where an Old Testament name or topic is referred to without reference to a specific context. Close quote. In other words, in those 13 chapters, the author fills them with the Holy Scriptures, allusions, summarizations. Our author sounds like a man who lived by Psalm 119, 15, and 16, and 18. I will meditate on thy precepts. I will meditate on thy precepts and have respect unto thy ways. Thy ways don't happen in our lives. Until we've spent time in the scriptures. He sounds like a man that understands that. I will delight myself in thy statutes. I will not forget thy word. Open thou mine eyes. That I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. That's a good prayer for us. Open thou mine eyes. That I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. Now, whether he was a man who prayed in those terms, he certainly sounds like one. But Clearly, the Holy Spirit had taught our author to see Christ Jesus in the Old Testament scriptures. And he uses them to that effect. Why is that important? Why do we care? An old book, quoting an old book. Why should we care? Well, because the Holy Spirit used a man who was filled with Scripture, Old Testament Scripture, just like Paul or Apollos, to plead with the Jewish believers not to leave the faith in perilous times. That's his goal. He's not just spouting out, oh, I've memorized a few Scriptures, now I sound like a believer he is pleading with the hearts of those who are walking away from their Messiah to go back to the empty shell of the old covenant. He shows them Christ, shores them up with Christ, warns them with Christ And he magnifies Christ. That's why it matters. We need the same. I do not know what the days ahead bring. I am no prophet. But I read the prophets. And I can tell you. God brings withering destruction Upon nations that live like we do. Read Romans 1. And then think about. Just the daily news. To emphasize. This. (coughs) The author uses a literary device. Known as an inclusio. I know some folk. Don't like it when we get technical. This will be a brief technical stop. Why do I care about a literary device? Because God is telling you something by this man's use of it. So what is an inclusio? We may describe it as brackets. Sometimes when we're reading something, we see something in brackets. We might better describe them as Bookends, bookends. The bookends hold the important stuff up. When uh, an author in the scripture uses inclusion, there are many times that the authors do. <clears throat> what they're telling you is what we're saying. The author of this would be saying, what I mean, By using these bookends. Is that all the content. Is vital. He's emphasizing. How important. The scriptural. Declaration and revelation of Christ in the Old Testament is. That's important. We don't want to miss them. Well what are the bookends then? Well in verse 5. It says, for unto which of the angels said he at any time? And then verse 13. But to which of the angels said he at any time? He repeats himself. Those are the brackets. Those are the bookends. And what's in between emphasizes the arguments that are first are heard in verses 1 through 3. And now will be argued Resting upon the foundation of God's holy word. So, it is all scripture about Christ. That's what's between the bookends. And it's proving that he indeed is truly God and truly man and that he reigns. So then, the author uses his knowledge of scriptures to exalt the Lord Jesus. That's our next main thought. It's in verse 5. The wondrous thing this author learned from God's word was the beauty and the reign of Christ in Psalm 2. When did the ascended Christ inherit the more excellent name? When he was seated at the Father's right hand. When he was seated on the right hand of the majesty on high. Now to make this point, the Holy Spirit guides the author to apply Psalm 2 to Christ Jesus. For that important connecting word for connects verse 5 to what has been said in verse 4. He hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they for. First book in. Under which of the angels said he at any time, "Thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee." <clears throat> and again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. The again, and there's a series of agains here. What what he's saying is, not only did I just say this, but I'm going to say something like it again right here. The context points to this conclusion. The more excellent name is son. Although angels and kings are sometimes called sons in scripture. It means that God is their father as a creator. And that they have a relationship with him. Every lost man has a relationship with God, even if he professes to be an atheist, because he is a being, a creature made in the image of God for the purpose of honoring him, of worshiping him, of serving him with all his life. He is a son because God created him, but he's certainly not a son that will enter heaven unless he repents and believes on the Lord Jesus. <clears throat> Not only did the author of Hebrews know what Old Testament Scripture said, he understood what it meant. He, he has all of the three things that I regularly say to us. <clears throat> we need to know what the Bible Says first. Very often. All of us are probably guilty of this. And when I say that. I do not exclude myself. We go. You know that place in the Bible where it says. And you, you try to quote it. And it's not what the Bible says. And it doesn't even get the gist. Of what the Bible says. That's one of the ways people. Rip things out of context. You've got to know. What. It says. And then you have to know what it means. It's obvious that the uh, the, uh, author of Hebrews knows what it says and he knows what it means because he skillfully applies. That's the third one. We've got to know what it says. We've got to know what it means and then we need to skillfully apply it. You can get the first two right. And miss it in the third one. Generally you won't. If you do get the first two right. <clears throat> that is plainly worked out for us. Right here. <clears throat> so. He knew what it said. He knew what it meant. And he applied it skillfully. For one reason only. The power. Of the Holy Spirit. No one. Handles the word. Of right in its spiritual sense, in its spiritual power, without the Holy Spirit. That doesn't mean that when we read a particular passage, I'm reading Ezekiel right now, and I don't know what a lot of the passages mean. I read them, I hear what they're saying, but it's very difficult To understand some of the things that are there. It would not be a good idea. For me to try to build doctrine. On that. Same thing applies. To you. By the illumination. Of the Holy Spirit. The author reaches into Psalm 2. Which is about a Davidic. King, and he applies it to Christ. The the passage, the entire uh, chapter, that that entire psalm doesn't mention Messiah with that word. Now we cannot here do an exposition of Psalm 2, which I would love to do. We would have more parts of this than I would be able to give good account for. But if you'll turn to Psalm 2, I'm going to read it. Psalm 2, beginning in verse 1. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together Against the Lord and against his anointed. Now the word anointed is there. Which is ultimately what uh, is meant by Messiah. But in the context it's talking about the king. All the kings were anointed. They were anointed as the servants. As the sons of God. To reign on the earth. Where else would they reign? To reign on the earth. They set themselves together against the Lord and against his anointed. And of course, the word anointed is why the Lord's people in time, in study of this, understanding it in its historical meaning, realized it goes past the earthly kings that are anointed. So it's a very real sense you could say in those days the king is the anointed. And the scriptures say that. <clears throat> Prophets were sometimes anointed. Priests were always anointed. But what we see in all of those ultimately do point us to Christ. Prophets, priests, kings. Jesus Christ was the prophet, the priest, and the king anointed as The anointed, the Messiah of God. But it says now, let us break our bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. There's a distinct, a distinction between the heaven and the earth. He that sitteth in the heavens will laugh because of the heathen. And the people imagining a vain thing, the kings that rise up. Well, what's happening there? Historically, we know that David wrote this. I'll talk about that in a few moments. Israel was surrounded by pagan nations. They were constantly falling into their God worship rather than bringing them into the true God worship. They were there to be a light. Unto the world. They were there. Israel was there. Because God's presence. Was there. And they should have been a light. To the lost. A light. To the nations. They failed miserably. They broke God's covenant. And they were dragged into captivity. But. The kings surrounded them. They took counsel together. Against the king of Israel. And it says, let us break their bands asunder and cast their cords away from us. They didn't like the rule of Israel and very often they were conquered by Israel. They had to pay taxes. They didn't like that. and They didn't like their king and what he stood for because he had a different God than they did. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in sore displeasure. God laughs and then he pours out his wrath upon them. Then shall he speak unto them in wrath and vex them in sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. That is where the earthly kings reigned once again the king on his throne represented the God in the temple and the God in heaven that is why each king was supposed to write a copy of the law and meditate in it so that he could be a king that reflected the king in heaven many of The pagan religions believed that their kings were the the representatives of their gods. But the living God ruled his people through an earthly king who was to reflect his justice, his judgments, his glorious and holy character. Now yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion I will declare the decree the Lord has said unto me thou art my son <clears throat> we're going to see in the very next passage that we look at that God indeed calls earthly kings sons thou art my son this day have I begotten thee uh. Begotten there doesn't mean I gave you an earthly life. It means in the day that you were anointed and are now reigning in my name, I am your father and you are my son. I have become your father as you rule in my name. There's a relationship. Ask of me and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Now here we begin to see the the trajectory moving away from what any of the earthly kings accomplished. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore. O ye kings, be instructed ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry. And ye perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. We can see that here is a historical situation. But the more. You read it, the more you pray about it, the the average Israelite would have to say, well, where's this king? None of our kings have done this. This has never come to pass for any of our kings. God promised this. Well, God was faithful. He did raise up that king. And that's one of the reasons the author of Hebrews applies it to Jesus Today you are my son. What was the today? Well, there's the commentaries are all over the place on this. I will simply offer two simple ones. Number one, when Jesus ascended, it was on a day. It wasn't a a two-month trip. He went into glory from that day. There's nothing that tells us that he waited for four months. I mean, there's no calendar in heaven. Except perhaps of the ones God keeps on us. Jesus entered the eternal realm. Having finished his work of purging the sins of his people, he sat down. His work was finished. And there is a great coronation. And that is why we see beautifully pulled out. Now, I would love to spend an hour on Psalm 2. But this is exactly why he says, Thou art my son. Here is the king that will not fail. Here is the king of whom that will be completely and always true. No one will take his reign from him. And he will rule over all. He has begun his reign. And there's a consummation coming. Now. Let's focus here. On Paul using the very same text. Paul preached it. Psalm 2. It was when he was in Pisidian Antioch. And he was preaching to the Jews. The Gentiles. We're coming in to hear. Paul declared of Jesus, and though they found no cause of death in him, yet desired they Pilate that he should be slain. And when they had fulfilled all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in the sepulchre. But God raised him from the dead, and he was seen many days of them which came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses unto the people. And we declare unto you glad tidings. We're preaching the gospel to you, how that the promise which was made unto the fathers, God hath fulfilled the same unto us their children, in that he raised up Jesus from the dead. He raised up Jesus again as it is written in the second Psalm. Thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. The resurrection, the ascension, the sitting down, all are part and parcel of Psalm 2. They work together to magnify Christ as that glorious anointed king. That makes it even more sober to read, kiss the son, lest he be angry. Oh yes, he is the Christ of love. God is love. But God is holy. And because he is holy, He is just. And because he is just, he hates sin and he will judge it. And for that reason, we need the king. We need to repent of our sins and believe on that one seated at the Father's right hand. Well, we have two more headings there and I will not stretch our time any longer. Let me simply give two of the applications here. I will apply the other. In fact, I will do three. And they're very simple. When we look at this and when we think about what's just been said, let us learn from Hebrews the beauty of Christ in the Old Testament. Not just in the New Testament. But let us learn from Hebrews the beauty of, of christ in the old testament we should read those old testament scriptures and understand them the best we can in the historical sense of what was happening why did isaiah say what he said and when did he say it why jeremiah daniel ezekiel we could go through all of the prophets they were speaking to god's people And calling them back. To be faithful to the covenant. But they were not. Except for a remnant. For which we thank the Lord. But in all that. We can understand then. Why the author of the Hebrews. Is saying now. I will tell you. Who's seated at the father's right hand. The son the anointed king. I will have a little more to say about that. God willing next week. <clears throat> Let us learn from Hebrews number two. The abiding revelation of the Old Testament scriptures. It is a shame that for many in our day. There are not many fingerprints in the biggest part of the Bible. Well that's the Old Testament. I don't have anything to do with that. You're. Your Savior is promised then. All the way back to Genesis 3.15. The glorious one that would crush the serpent's head. The first mention, the first gospel of Jesus Christ. Brethren, the Old Testament is not our covenant. We are members by regeneration, which produces repentance and faith and obedience in our lives. We are members of the new and better covenant. Hebrews is going to argue powerfully for the betterness of the new covenant. But your Savior is still to be seen and loved and truly desired in the old covenant. That doesn't mean that we can take every single verse and say this is a prophecy of Jesus. But it does mean that he fills the revelation of the Old Testament. But it cannot compare to the revelation of the new when Jesus came. Lastly, let us learn from these passages of the faithfulness of God. We see the Christ. Promised, We see the king promised. And now we're reading. We read and look back at the, the, the epistle to the Hebrews. And we are seeing God's faithfulness in bringing Messiah, the king, into this world. And we look forward to that glorious reappearance of our God, our king, our savior, our Lord. We look forward to those glorious and beautiful days in which he will be reigning upon the earth. So my dear brethren, don't take the Old Testament for granted. Look at the glorious faithfulness of God, the God who gave his only begotten son and the God who speaks to the whole universe. The one at my right hand is my son. May God help us to see these things. And in all that, God's son Jesus, the Christ, is better than the angels. The author wants his readers to know that Jesus sits enthroned in the highest place of the universe. And that is something properly understood is the great comfort in our lives. Whether great joys fill us or whether our enemies and failures and sins depress us, we have the King. We have the One who is better than the angels. May we love Him, obey Him, worship, and adore Him now and forever. Amen. My Father, I thank Thee for the truth of Thy Word. From Genesis to Revelation, infallible, Spirit-breathed truth. Unfold it to us that we might walk faithfully with Thee. I thank Thee and I praise Thee for Thy Son. Amen. Would you please stand with me? Paul said to the Corinthians. <clears throat> Finally, brethren, farewell, be perfect. be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace shall be with you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Amen.